Yep. No, oh, yeah, I, I agree. But anyway, so great weekend for Michigan hockey. Great Michigan or weekend for Michigan football. What do we have coming up this weekend? We have uh, volleyball on Friday. With, Michigan uh, basketball on Thursday. Michigan basketball and on the Thursday football game on, on the Saturday. stream and the football game at uh, Spartan Stadium yes. on Saturday. That's a three thirty kickoff. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, for all the people here in the studio. I'm Andrew Side saying good, uh, we'll say good night this time, and uh, go blue. Navarre gives to Perry, Perry through the middle, touchdown Michigan, and the Wolverines have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27 to 24, and the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor, WCBN.org. Grabs on to attempt it for the Wolverines. Holds her breath, Ann Arbor, as Navarre gets set. Places down, kick is up. It's long enough. It's good! It's good! Michigan wins the game! Michigan shocks Washington, and the Wolverines are victorious! Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And my name is Jim Dwyer. And uh, all sorts of adventures going on tonight. Of course, the uh, Stanley Kubrick movie 2001 is playing at the Michigan Theater tonight. Yeah, and I'll actually be cutting out of the program early to go over and uh, catch the beginning of that. Uh, yeah. One of the greatest films ever made. Yes, and I'll be there later. I'm obviously going to miss the... Uh, beginning scene but i've seen it enough to get over it <laughs> yeah well really the the central portion with hal and uh of course jupiter and beyond the infinite that's really the key portion of the film although every single frame is good indeed well it's remarkable uh just the last uh, couple of weeks with all this War talk involving Iran, it's uh, frightening stuff. Uh, well, I guess we'll get to that in a second. That's sort of a big story. Just a kind of a quick comment about the uh, wildfires in California. Hmm. Obviously, the media coverage has been <laughs> nonstop around yeah. the clock. And uh, I think comparisons to Katrina are inevitable, but let's put this in perspective. Uh, several thousand homes were destroyed in these uh, wildfires in California. Katrina involved 300,000. <laughs> There's a big difference between the scale of these disasters. And, of course, the area involving Katrina was just absolutely humongous. Uh, we're talking about an area from New Orleans over to Biloxi, Mississippi. Right. And, of course, there was even some... Uh, flooding in Alabama. So uh, the comparisons there are just... They're flawed. Flawed and um, appropriate. But I, I think one of the things that p people are really missing in this story is 
is the comparison between San Diego and other parts of California regarding fire uh, fighting equipment and taxes. Um, another comparison, of course, to, 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 to you know that might be appropriate is to compare uh, 9/11. New York and uh, California are two of the highest tax areas in America. New Orleans, Mississippi, some of the lowest. Right. So we're talking here about equipment. And it's quite clear that, uh, once again, uh, some of the key equipment involved in fighting fires is in Iraq. Uh, that's been pointed out by uh, lieutenant governor and uh, elected officials from California. But it's really about taxes. Uh, recently, uh, the fire chief in San Diego recommended uh, spending several tens of millions of dollars on more firefighting equipment in response to these fires that occurred several years ago. Uh, the voters rejected this. San Diego is a notoriously conservative area. It's dominated by the military. And as one person put it, San Diego's firefighting approach is to rely on the military to bail them out, not, you know, local municipal tax sources. Right. So this is really about resources and, uh, you know, where, where do you put your money? And I think that most Americans, I would be shocked if it's... Lower than 99% of Americans um, think that firefighting equipment is an appropriate uh, utilization of tax money being spent. Uh, firefighters, of course, are perceived as heroes by uh, nearly all Americans. I think it's, it's virtually unanimous, regardless of political perspective. And uh, California needs to uh, step up to the plate. Uh, and San Diego, in particular, needs to set up, uh, step up to the plate. San Diego, by the way, has had all sorts of uh, municipal scandals involving their uh, money. Mm. Uh, this is a underreported story in connection to the fires, but uh, they had some city managers that uh, invested heavily in the stock market. They're essentially bankrupt, and uh, the voters themselves rejected quote tax increases. We're seeing this sort of a rhetoric here in, in Michigan in, uh, in connection with the fact that uh, some organization is trying to recall uh, five Republicans that voted for quote-unquote tax increases to deal with the, uh, the, the budget problems here in the state of Michigan. And uh, this is the kind of debate we need to have, and it's not being had. Uh, we've talked about this before in connection with the Iraq War. The Iraq War has cost $600 billion, and uh, the advocates of the war uh, do not want to pay for it and, uh, well, uh, when are they going to step up to the plate? Well, there's, <clears throat> there's so many other things that need paying for. This fire equipment that you're talking about right here in Ann Arbor, of course, we've recently uh, had to shut down fire stations due to lack of funds. And uh, while we're not completely crippled in that department, it means a further drive uh, for those fire stations that do remain operative. Uh, kind of a startling article over the weekend uh, about the U.S. water supply <clears throat> projections that 36 states will face water shortages in as little as five years. Mm -hmm. And um, when you mention those numbers uh, on the Iraq war, you know, you start thinking about other monies. We all have household budgets and have to allocate funds for this or that. <clears throat> Uh, the price tag for ensuring a reliable water supply could be staggering, writes Brian Skoloff, 
Experts estimate that just upgrading pipes to handle new supplies could cost the nation $300 billion over 30 years. Of course, we also need more desalinization plants. We need uh, water treatment centers to uh, recycle wastewater. There's a number of very important things that cash monies are much more urgently needed for than this illusory. Uh, let's face it, there there is no purpose to the war in Iraq at this point, militarily, diplomatically. It's all about political, you know, face saving for the Bush administration at this point and little else. So uh, this is money very poorly spent um, in the face of other more pressing needs. Yeah, and we've seen it in connection with the uh, so-called S-chip debate regarding the 10 million children that mm -hmm. Congress has attempted to uh, provide funding for. Bush, of course, has vetoed this, saying we can't afford this. Well, uh, the Democrats are, are weenies sometimes, but they've pointed out that this uh, represents about 40 days worth of spending on the war in Iraq. and. Uh, by last count, it was something like 1,200 days since a uh, mission accomplished. Right. Um, and water, of course, is crucial. We've seen, uh, in, in, for instance, in Georgia, with uh, Atlanta's water supply being threatened and a big fight uh, between Alabama, Florida, and Georgia regarding that water. Mm -hmm. There's been a drought there. Um, some of the water, and, and this is just a typical uh, item that I have, uh, saved up just on this issue. Uh, this is just a brief from the AP dated uh, the 2nd of March, 2005, regarding uh, water in Nevada. And this is interesting because it relates to water in, in uh, Southern California. The AP reports a plan to pipe water to Las Vegas from rural Nevada could cost more than $2 billion, according to a preliminary uh, estimate released by the Southern Nevada Water Authority. The price includes... 461 miles of pipeline, four pumping stations, and about 200 miles of power lines to be built over the next decade or more. Officials say the project could supply Las Vegas with at least 240,000 acre-feet of water a year, more than two-thirds of its annual allotment from the Colorado River. Well, we know that the Colorado River... <laughs> pretty tapped out. Pretty tapped out. At one time, it uh, supplied uh, Los Angeles with uh, water. And uh, these regional water problems are not going away. There need to be really key focuses on what I call uh, proper um, development in some areas. Uh, some of the water being diverted to Vegas, by the way, goes to such ridiculous things as water fountains. Right. And, and you know, just that Long sort of treatments. glitzy La Las Vegas uh, neon, you know, <laughs> utopia. But it's not a utopia. And, of course, these people in rural Nevada are fighting uh, the, the diversion of water because this, this uh, basically pits... Uh, ranchers and farmers. Uh, I actually have relatives that live uh, in uh, Nevada that uh, are still cattle ranchers, old-fashioned cowboys. <laughs> um, and uh, this is uh, a big issue that needs much more national attention and rational Discourse. Uh, we just read a thing a couple of weeks ago about a study regarding ethanol right. and how absolutely insane the water diversion involved in creating a, a, a liter of ethanol it's something like a thousand to one this is crazy and yet this is being proposed as an energy solution for america in the future uh something that uh, I, i'll probably talk about when jim leaves for the uh, 2001 
Space Odyssey movie over at the Michigan Theater tonight. Uh, a big breaking story about the judge in the pants. You've heard, oh, about, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you've heard about this story. Well, we have to give this guy a brain damage award. It says that Roy Penson, or Pearson, whose $54 million lawsuit against a Washington dry cleaning shop was rejected in court, is about to lose his job as an administrative law judge. Uh, this uh, dated uh, the 23rd of October from the Associated Press. Uh, Pearson waged a legal battle against custom cleaners, alleging that the shop had lost a pair of pants that he had brought in for a $10.50 worth of alterations. Uh, the owner, Sue Chung, and her family said they found the pants, but uh, Pearson said in a 2005 lawsuit that they were not his. Um, Larry Craig's pants, perhaps? <laughs> $10.50 worth of work and a lost pair of pants. A $54 million lawsuit in, in response, and I recall that this judge complained that they have a sign on the wall, you know, satisfaction guaranteed, <laughs> and that this somehow merited a $54 million lawsuit. Uh, these uh, absurd lawsuits, of course, uh, and of course he lost this case, fortunately for the world, uh, but uh, hopefully... Um, his newfound unemployment check will allow him to buy some new pants. And uh, <clears throat> speaking of wandering around without pants and brain damage award, I think Dave Emery uh, might have de-pantsed himself on uh -oh. last Friday's program. I, I have to give old Dave Emery a brain damage award. I missed award. it. I know there's a number of listeners who uh, might enjoy that program. And I uh, you know, respect a great deal the people here at WCBN who bring that program to you, but I sometimes wonder about old Dave. Not even to go into the category of who's he from, what are his credentials, you know, who supports him. He's not a professor or recognized uh, academic or anything. That's beside the point uh, and uh, of little consequence here, but I was alarmed by his program last week, which seem to have uh, taken a few pages from David Horowitz's recent Islamo-Fascist Awareness Week celebration in which uh, Horowitz and Ann Coulter and Mr. Santorum went around to various college campuses lecturing the left, scolding the left, lecturing obviously to their own converted, um, anyone who would listen, about the dangers of Islamo-Fascism, a term I've debunked here on the program, so I'm not going to linger over that. But I was really startled by some of the things Dave Emery was saying. He essentially equated a criticism of neoconservatism to a veiled attack at the Jews. I guess because a number of leading neocons are Jewish? Yeah. This is a rather absurd uh, proposition, though, considering the nature of Dave's typical program in which he goes after business interests and Bush administration mm -hmm. affiliates who are neoconservatives so i thought well gee that's kind of strange he i didn't listen to the entire program i got fed up and uh, annoyed enough at one point to turn away but then checked back later and he was going on about the uh, israeli lobby paper that was written by a couple of harvard professors oh mearsheimer and uh, walt one yeah. one is actually a university of chicago professor that's right and he was suggesting anyway. that that uh, research was funded by Arab money 
And in fact, it may have. Who knows? There's all sorts of money being used for research. But what was really startling was when uh, Dave Emery said that critics of Israel are silent on the matter of Tibet and Castro's Cuba. Well, this is a bizarre comparison. There's really no way this comparison is really sound or accurate. Uh, For one, uh, most critics of the Israeli occupation are also openly critical of China's occupation of Tibet. And as far as Castro is concerned, who occupies who? The U.S. has got Guantanamo Bay locked down permanently. Castro's, at this point, small potatoes and virtually dead on one leg. Incidentally, Castro is paid $1 a year uh, by check, which he doesn't cash. Right. <laughs> so he's got the pile of checks. <clears throat> and, but, and, of course, the, the rent involved with that is uh, kind of ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, the the major difference, however, is that neither China nor Castro's Cuba are funded with U.S. tax dollars to support their occupations. Right. Whereas the Israeli occupation depends entirely upon U.S. taxpayer dollars. Now, it's not being anti-Semitic to criticize a sovereign nation that wants to be taken seriously as a sovereign nation, whatever its religious identity. Uh, It's an attack on the policies of that nation. And if Israel is an ally, well, you would expect your allies, uh, you'd hold them to a higher standard if uh, that case needs to be made at all. So I'm not sure if Dave Emery is an Israeli apologist, and if he is, that's fine. But I wonder what else he might be, and I wish I knew. Well, I didn't hear this particular show. I actually catch uh, that show most uh, weeks, but for some reason, I don't remember what it should I was should be doing. available online. It would, the episode was called Socialism of Fools. Ah, okay. Um, um. But, of course, I would have some problems with that criticism. First of all, the Walt Mersheimer um, debate, brouhaha, or fawful, or whatever you want to call it, uh, will continue. They've just recently published a book. Uh, that is an ongoing debate and uh, deserves serious analysis, um, criticism, whatever. Uh, these are both intellectuals. They're, they're open-minded, and they just reject wholeheartedly the uh, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitic perspective of the critique. Uh, right. They simply are not... Um, and, they, and they note, by the way, that a very large percentage of Israelis oppose the... <laughs> West Bank uh, situation, yeah. um, and what are they anti-Semitic Jews? Uh, yeah. That's that's just nonsense. Criticizing Israel's policies is not anti-Semitism, and is an old canard that's used by supporters of Israel, um, who ironically are at the forefront of this new saber rattling over Iran. Indeed, and this, of course, is what's scaring. Just a quick dissent on Tibet. Um, Whether or not China is, quote, occupying Tibet is also a historical debate, uh, a legitimate historical debate. There is is ambiguity regarding the negotiations that took place between uh, Britain and China back in the early part of the 20th century regarding the future of Tibet. and that's something that we can address on, an, on a different show. But that's another complicated story. It is not quite clear that Tibet is being occupied by China, so to speak. Um, whether or not it should be an autonomous region or an independent country is another matter of debate, historical debate. And, of course, the documents involved with Britain's uh, involvement in many, many parts of the world. Indeed. 
uh, continues to haunt us today, and that's just one of many places. Um, as for the Islamo-fascism uh, issue that you brought up, I think it's important to keep an eye on this uh, term. Uh, Norman Potteritz, of course, mm, yes. has written a new book with that in the title, and I noticed he was actually the first guest tonight on uh, on uh, the news hour with McNeil Lehrer having a debate with uh, Fareed Zakaria about whether or not we should start a war with Iran. <laughs> oh, yay. Uh, yeah, this, of course, is his new... Um, Objective for American foreign policy, and it's something that the Bush administration publicly well, seems he's been uh, at it pretty recently. Yeah, too. and it's very interesting. I looked up, by the way, the price of oil uh, in early September compared to where it's at now. This is fascinating. It's gone up twenty percent since when? Early September. Wow. So the the recent saber rattling over Iran uh, and the apparent uh, objective of the neoconservatives to either start bombing Iran or um, invading, which is just madness. It's interesting that Potteritz uses um, Hitler analogies to critique people that oppose this idea, right. saying that we don't understand the threat of Islamo-fascism. In fact, I would say the Hitler analogy is more analogous to what America may be doing in the Middle East. Yeah. This, by the way, would be the third region of an area that goes from Iraq to the Hindu Kush that America would be involved in militarily. I don't know how uh, big that represents in the continental United States, but I do know that Iran is roughly the size of Alaska. Right. Uh, Cal uh, California is roughly the size of uh, Afghanistan, and Texas is roughly the size of Iraq. So we are talking about an enormous area, and the idea that uh, America with somehow 180,000 troops... There's roughly 150,000 in, uh, in Iraq and about 30,000 in Afghanistan. It can somehow control this area is, is ludicrous on the face of it. I'd also point out that um, PBS had an outstanding frontline um, story on uh, Iran just this past week called Showdown with Iran on the 23rd of October. And... If this is ever replayed again, I highly recommend uh, viewers to, to uh, see this show because this showed a different perspective on the uh, consequences of invading Iran. It also showed uh, that Iran is not this uh, sort of um, ancient Islamic, Islamo-fascist area of the world, that, it, that power in Iran is actually dispersed and even a goofball like... Uh, Abinajad is is not uh, in sole control of Iran. Iran, of course, is run by a uh, sort of a group of mullahs that um, uh, control uh, much of the policy. But uh, the president of Iran is not in control of foreign policy in that country by any stretch of the imagination. What I found interesting about this uh, frontline story, Showdown with Iran, which interestingly, by the way, the New York Times usually highlights the frontline Tuesday night show, uh, but for whatever reason in their edition that particular day, they highlighted um, a CNN show, Perils to Our Planet, which of course involves global warming, uh, certainly an important issue. But I th found it interesting that they didn't uh, 
as usual, highlight this particular uh, show on Iran, maybe because uh, it showed a very different perspective about Iran that the American public does not get from the mainstream media. It was interesting that Frontline was able to get in to Tehran and to interview uh, people that are closely connected with the intellectual uh, um, power in Iran. Editors, spokespeople for the, the mullahs, and dissidents that, that have pointed out uh, this interesting relationship that America and Iran have had uh, over the years. Needless to say, the first uh, attempt by the American government at regime change in Iran back in 1953 uh, ultimately did not turn out that well as uh, we, we put the Shah back in power and he was eventually overthrown by a radical uh, Shiite um, uh, quote, revolution uh, headed by Ayatollah Khomeini. And uh, one of the fascinating claims in the documentary was uh, somebody stating that the Bush administration was, quote, shocked at the response uh, that Iran had uh, to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. They, of course, uh, in <coughs> wanted Saddam Hussein to be overthrown. Saddam Hussein had started a war with them in uh, 1980 that resulted in a million casualties in the region. Saddam Hussein invaded Iran uh, in response to uh, this Shiite crescent idea that's been uh, um, talked about in which, uh, and, and, and the documentary incidentally showed how uh, more than a million Shiite, quote, pilgrims moved from Iran into Iraq after Saddam Hussein was overthrown and that the uh, Iranian regime r regarded uh, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein is an opportunity to uh, promote a Shiite revival in the region. Um, going into conspiracy theories about the Saddam Hussein invasion of Iraq back in 1980, of course, is fascinating because there's ample evidence that Saddam Hussein met with Saudi Arabia, met with Egypt, and as the documentary noted, there are significant Shiite minorities in Egypt and Saudi Arabia that <laughs> the, the uh, leaders of those countries are um, definitely worried about. And as the documentary noted, um, Saudi and Egyptian, the Saudi and Egyptian governments, interestingly, were funding some of the Sunni insurgents in the early part of the um, um, American occupation of Iraq, and that this eventually, of course, culminated in the uh, terrible bombing of a sacred Shiite site in, uh, I believe it was Samara, back in February of 2006, and this led to the the, the revival, uh, so to speak, of the uh, uh, Shiite um, insurgency. So the, the complicated uh, aspects of America occupying Iraq continue, and that um, this documentary, of course, talked to some of the moderates uh, in the Iranian government that were in consultation through, quote-unquote, back channels with the American government regarding... Um, cooperation between Iran and the United States and the eventual um, overthrow of uh, Saddam Hussein. 
They also noted in the documentary, by the way, that Iran cooperated with the United States in overthrowing the Taliban in uh, Afghanistan. Let's remember that the Northern Alliance had some elements in it that were connected to Iran. Uh, The Taliban in Iran, by the way, had almost gotten into a war back in 1998 when the Taliban attacked the Iranian embassy uh, in uh, northern Afghanistan. Uh, the, the particular city is escaping me there, but it's it's one of the major cities in northern Afghanistan that was attacked, and there were something like 20 Iranian diplomats killed in the gunfire, and they almost came to war back in 1998. Of course, the Taliban espoused a radical Sunni Wahhabi philosophy. It's not actually Wahhabi. It's, it's, it's actually a different version of uh, Sunni um, Sharia law, fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it. So these were two fundamentalist regimes that, that were in opposition to each other, as well as being Shiite, uh, a, a, a Sunni-Shiite um, uh, dichotomy. And uh, interestingly, one of the uh, mis- missteps that the American government made was it underestimated this Shiite revival um, concept in the in the Iranian government, uh, noting that some of the experts uh, in the National Security Council that was headed up by <laughs> Condoleezza Rice, uh, who has conspicuously been unqualified for the job she's held, uh, dismissed this concept, claiming that well we don't need to worry about this. These Shiites in uh, in Iraq, they're Arabs, and the Iranian. Um, government, of course, uh, Persia, they're Persians, and Arabs and Persians simply don't get along. Well, this, of course, was nonsense. The uh, The documentary showed that nearly all of the prominent um, opposition Shiite uh, pr- prospective leaders of Iraq that the United States had promoted, including uh, Maliki, Alawi, and um, Ahmed Kalabi, were all in Tehran. Uh, shortly before the war began, and that they were meeting with the mullahs, and that this this uh, this this sort of vague misunderstanding of what really was going to happen once America overthrew Saddam Hussein um, became a perpetual problem uh, in the Bush administration. And of course, different people espouse different things. Uh, Richard Armitage, of course, was the one sort of prominent, high-powered American official that talked to Frontline in this particular uh, story, as well as uh, Hillary Mann, a National uh, Security Council Iran analyst, who uh, they both uh, showed some knowledge, inside knowledge of of the blunders that the American government um, had made uh, in mis-underestimating, mis-underestimating to paraphrase George Bush, the problems that occupying Iraq would have. And, of course, these problems have continued. Uh, Another expert that was uh, interviewed, by the way, is Flint Leverett, um, who is very critical of the Bush administration's uh, misunderstanding of the regional consequences of invading uh, Iran, so um, invading Iraq. And so this we need to keep our eyes on this saber rattling. Uh, this is scary stuff. Um, experts claim, well, the United States simply doesn't have the military capability to invade Ir- Iran, 
but it was very significant, I thought, that a number of powerful people in and connected closely to the Iranian regime uh, indicated that there would be serious consequences, serious repercussions if America used a preemptive strike against Iran. This could include uh, many problems uh, involving uh, the Strait of Hormuz um, and, of course, the flow of oil. 